I'm JJ Heller, and this is Instrumental, a show about the big and small moments that shape our lives. In every episode, my guest and I start near the end of their story and work our way back to the beginning. I hope our conversation reminds you that every second matters because none of us knows which moment will be the one that changes everything. Hey everybody, it's JJ. It's Dave. And we are back with We a- are the Hellers. <laughs> we are the Hellers and we are back with another episode for you. And it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> so just you wait. Just you wait and Reagan's. Um What what's that from? My fair lady. Oh, uh, okay. All I want is a room somewhere. All I want <laughs> is a podcast now. <laughs> Here we go. Today we interview our friend Andrew Peterson. All I want <laughs> okay, is we're, the we've, podcast we, to start. We've moved past that now, Dave. <laughs> the podcast is starting, so you've gotten your wish. Hmm. <laughs> if you are unfamiliar with Andrew Peterson, then it is a privilege to introduce you to him because not only is he a talented singer-songwriter, but he's also curated a community of artists called The Rabbit Room. Rabbitroom.com. <laughs> Should I just talk with an English accent for the rest of this? I don't think so. Yeah, English people would make fun of me uh, if yeah, I did. Uh-huh. Okay. We need as many fans of the show as we can get. So, don't, so. don't go insulting entire <laughs> countries of people. Look, that's your takeaway from the episode today. <laughs> uh, okay, so Andrew, he has built a, a community. Rabbitroom.com. Uh, yeah, yes. And he has written a fantasy series called The Wing Feather Saga. Which and, our children love. Yes, Dave's reading those books to the girls at bedtime. And they get mad at me when I stop. I know. It's enchanting. And he's also just released a memoir about creativity called Adorning the Dark. I get email messages and questions through social media all the time from people who are asking my advice about how to pursue a career in music or songwriting. And I am so thankful for Andrew's new book because it is the perfect resource, not only for people who are wanting to build a career, but for people like us who've been making music for almost two decades now. Well, I think the the thing that Andrew says in Adorning the Dark that is so needed is it's not that simple. It is a lifetime's journey to finding your identity, finding your voice, finding your audience. And you will hear so much of that as Andrew shares his story with us. Also, there's a glow-in-the-dark moon on the cover. So there's that. Yes. I think we've sufficiently talked about Andrew, so maybe it's time to actually hear from him. Just you wait, audience. (laughs) Just you wait. (laughs) Act three, it takes a village. It takes a village. Oh, Dave. <laughs> you're not, this is the, like the, the sacred part. Oh, you're, right. you're not supposed not, to okay. interrupt this part. Try one more time. Act three. It, it takes no. a village. <laughs> okay, oh, I'm going to be quiet now. Just, just do the thing. Act three, it takes a village. <laughs> <laughs> Can't interrupt me if I say it real fast. It takes a village. <laughs> Act three, 
It Takes a Village. This spring, Andrew was supposed to be playing concerts out on the road, but the coronavirus had other plans. So what does a touring musician do when he can't tour? I will let Andrew tell you. I have to be careful when I say this because I know that quarantine has been really hard for a lot of people, legitimately so. But the fact that I have spent, I think since I moved to Nashville 23 or four years ago, every spring has been touring season, mm -hmm. as you know. Like it's, you're, you're almost always gone in the spring. And we live in the country and I love the spring. It's my very favorite season. I love Easter. I love the story that's being told by all of creation kind of coming back to life again while we celebrate Jesus's resurrection and look for our own resurrection. All of those things are like in my wheelhouse and it's always killed me a little bit to have to leave home for such a large chunk of that time. And then I come back and try to like get the gardening in while I can. And then I've got to leave on the tour bus again. And so this year having two tours cancel and being forced to stay home is the first time that I've really ever experienced a full Nashville April, you know, hmm. and seen just the great wonder of, of what it is that God's doing. So I have been having a great time doing this and it's given me a lot of time to think. It's funny, Jamie just asked me yesterday, do you like working in the yard alone? Because I've been, we have a few acres. So it's, it's from 5.30 in the morning when I wake up as the sun is breaking until the sun sets at six, I'm basically outside wow. if it's not raining. And I'm so happy. Like it is so, <laughs> I'm pretty introverted. So have it, like I actually talk out loud to God when I'm doing that, you know, um, I'll ask him, Hey, will you let this maple tree grow? <laughs> Please let this grow because I, I, I want it to be big and beautiful one day. And so like, it's been this wonderfully, uh, devotional experience in this last month and a half or so. And so a lot of the things that I've been thinking about have been about how I have, A, been longing for Sabbath because I'm just tired. Like mm -hmm. when I, when I, I've said this before, but when I look back at the last 20 or so years, the records and writing the books and the rabbit room and the movie and the different stuff that's going on, like, yes, the Lord redeems our screwed up motivations and our fears and all this other stuff. But the, the honest truth is a lot of that was just sheer panic. Like, <laughs> like just feeling like, like I, we grew, I grew up poor. Like my dad was a pastor. And, and so I've always had this like kind of ghost in my mind of if you stop working, it's not going to be okay. There's going to be like the whole, the wheels are going to fall off. And yeah. so I've always carried with me this kind of fear uh, of, and as a self-employed singer songwriter, like that, that, that kind of like amps it all up even more is like, yeah. if I stop working, then this isn't going to work. And so that's a sure way to burn out and to fall into depression, which I did about five years ago. I just, I, I was just at the end of my rope and literally crying in a closet backstage at a church. The, the song, The Rain Keeps Falling, on an album called uh, The Burning Edge of Dawn is about that experience, about realizing that, like, okay, I'm empty, I'm spent, I don't know how to keep this up anymore. It describes being in the cave, which is, which is language that people use for depression a lot. Only at the time, I was almost literally in a cave. I was in a 
church janitor closet in the dark. And, you know, that became a metaphor for what, for what I was kind of feeling at the time. Well, I'm scared if I open myself to be known. I'll be seen and despised and be left all alone So I'm stuck in this tomb and you won't move the stone And the rain keeps falling Somewhere the sun is a light in the sky But I'm dying in North Carolina and I Can't believe there's an end to this season of night And the rain... And so I was beginning to tip into a season where I was no longer gonna be touring with Ben or Andy Gullihorn. Uh, I was kind of just like. And and they were they were the guys who traveled with you for like years, like accompanying years, you. Yeah, more than a decade, yeah. Yeah, you were a team for a really mm -hmm. long time. Yeah, yeah, and and it just, you know, it just got hard for, Andy has his own career and his wife's career and was trying to like squeeze in shows with me in the meantime. Ben's production career was ballooning and he was exhausted from being on tour. And so it needed to happen. We all knew that it would needed to happen. Yeah. Um, but it didn't make it any less painful. Sure. Know? And I felt, you know, it, the voice in my head at least was that I was the one who was out was alone now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, out on the road trying to make it work with, you know, a revolving door of different musicians every weekend depending on who was available. Yeah. And uh what's born of spirit is spirit, what's born of flesh is flesh. And so a lot of what was happening was my flesh. It was kind of like me. It was fear and ambition. That's the way that I've usually put it. It's like a lot of the the projects that I would do. There was mixed in with all that a genuine desire to serve the Lord with my gifting, like genuinely. But mixed in with that, <laughs> in the pot of soup was this list. Um, I was thinking of a really gross metaphor about like a dead <laughs> a, a dead frog. Some you know? snot. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a lot of fear and ambition mixed in with it. And so I'm very, very thankful that like in the last year or two, there's been a little bit of a room to breathe, a little bit of a break and a little bit of time to stop and just go, okay, wait, what am I really doing? What do I, what does God want me to do? And I have not written a song in a year. Wow. Like just haven't, haven't wanted to really like <laughs> I, I, that. Okay. That's not totally true. I, I rewind. Uh, <laughs> I, I have, uh, I have long wanted to write hymns. And so I, uh, I, Ben Shive and I've talked about this and I, I'm trying to write a hymn text per month during the year of 2020, wow. but I'm working on a new, uh, book or two right now. And really, we're, yeah. And about to harvest honey from my bees and wow. grow, planting maple trees and like 10, like, so I feel like if God, if it's okay, I would love to just do this for a minute, you know? Um, and the, the quarantine has kind of given me permission to do the thing my heart's been wanting to do for a long time. So I don't know what's next. I know that looking back, I'm so thankful that God has allowed me to serve him in this way, especially given how utterly broken I have been, you know, all the zillions of mistakes and bad motives that I've had along the way. And because I think of foundationally what the gospel means <laughs> is that I don't have to do it right, you know. But the fact that the church means that a bunch of other broken people are going to be involved in painting this picture that God wants painted. Hmm. Like that's kind of what I think about when I look back at the songs I've written in the Christmas tour and whatever is like his strength has been 
made perfect in my weakness. And he's done that through people like Ben and Andy and this community of people in Nashville and my family and my church. And, um, and so like the older I get, the more I realize what a total knucklehead I am and how little <laughs> I deserve it. And also I realize that that is not a source of shame, but a source of total joy hmm. and Thanksgiving. You know, I, I don't have any plans of stopping, you know, I want to keep making music and one of my very favorite things is walking onto the stage and I know I've got two hours to play music for people. It's just one of the best feelings in the world. I was listening to some writers who are like very well respected recently talking about how nervous they get when it comes to, to the release of something. And I was curious to know, with all of the content that you have released, if there's still that feeling or if it's just become like a muscle that you flex and it's like, here's the latest thing. I am very nervous about releasing things. The The thing that popped into my head was most recently was Adorning the Dark um, hmm. because it was – it is a memoir. So it felt far more personal like, like if somebody doesn't like the wing feather saga, it's kind of like, well, that's fine. You just don't like fantasy or this wasn't your cup of tea, whatever. But if somebody says they don't like a memoir and it's harder to separate that from feeling like they just don't like me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> which, which I want to be the kind of person who's totally fine with somebody not liking me, but I'm just not like I'm, I've always been a people pleaser and, and just want to be friends. You know, I want, can we all be friends? <laughs> On a personal note, pretty much the past several times we've talked to Dave's mom over FaceTime, somehow Adorning the Dark comes up. Like, oh, we well, recommended it to her. Here, here's what happened. My mom is trying to, to write. A memoir. Um, oh, wow. She's Yeah, she's an editor and a writer. But That's she great. gets lost in the weeds quite a bit. And you sent us a, the book. Both of us read it. And I just thought, like, my mom could really used a lot of the lessons that you share in Adorning the Dark. And so I shared it with her and now she just can't stop praising the book. <laughs> oh, she just she's like it so recommending much. it to other people. Yeah. And That's amazing. Thanks, Mama Heller. That's awesome. <laughs> so yeah, like I, I remember especially with Adorning the Dark in a way that I did not feel with the Wingfeather saga or even with the records, I, I felt more exposed. Hmm. Um, because with songs, there's still like this thing between you and the listener. There's yeah. this kind of poetic form that's floating there. But with the memoir, it was like just me talking for a hundred and some odd pages. And and so it felt just like somebody was going to be uh, reading my journals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it was pretty scary. And I think that if I ever reached a point where I felt like this thing is awesome and it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> it would probably mean I was disconnected enough from reality that the, the work would be terrible. <laughs> and I still think that. You guys probably know what I'm talking about. Well, if somebody gives you a demo and is like, the Lord gave me this song and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My first thought is this is going to be terrible. Yeah, all, all these red flags <laughs> pop up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and you, I honestly want it to be great, but yeah, I just right. experience has taught me that that probably means that it's not going to be great. Yeah. Um, but when I meet people who are kind of bashful about it and they're like, I'm on a journey right now. Like this is this is not a f- completed work. Like the completed work, we won't know until the consummation of the new creation. You know what I mean? And so 
we're all on this like long journey and everything we make is just like this little step along the way. Um, none of us have arrived. None of us will arrive. So if you think of your work that way, as like, this is my best attempt right now with the mm-hmm. tools at my disposal. And I'm, I'm thinking of this in the context of a longer story. Then that's when I get excited about hearing something that somebody's working on because they're, they're thinking of their, their craft in story terms. That means that it doesn't have to be perfect. That means that there's time for redemption. Yeah. Hmm. Can you speak to seeing your kids become creators? <laughs> oh man, it's one of the best best feelings in the world. For starters, they're just great people. Like I love to be with them. And that's mainly due to my wife's influence. Like she's just really a, she's a kind soul and good at conversation. And I'm, I'm more of a, like, you know, I don't do small talk. Well, like I, I like to dive deep fast, but Jamie's like good at just conversing, which has nurtured in my children, this enjoyment of sitting around and kind of talking and being pleasant with each other. And it's just amazing <laughs> to watch. Like, I, I, it wasn't like that when I was growing up, you know, my brother and I are both kind of like cut to the point. Like, as soon as like, we're done talking about what we're doing, I'm, I start getting antsy. Like, okay, what's the next thing? And Jamie's still sitting at the table like, what's the big hurry, man? <laughs> we haven't even gotten to the, you know, this next part of shooting the breeze. And it is just <laughs> a delightful thing to watch. So our kids are all good at that and, and wonderful to be around in that way. And so Sky just released her first, like, I think, the first thing she's really proud of. Mm-hmm. And then Asher just released Namo, which is this kind of amazing collaborative pop project that he's been working on. Aiden's finishing up his junior year at Lipscomb as, as an animation student and has illustrated some books already. And uh, I can't imagine anything better. Like it yeah. is the best thing to sit back and watch my kids not only do good work, but to do it in the context of uh, the kingdom. Like, I think that they genuinely have this healthy view of what it means to be a believer who, uh, who's been given a gift and what that gift is for is adding to the story of the new creation that's coming, you know? And so to see them think of it that way and is amazing. And I was talking to somebody about it. I was like, I feel so proud. You know, I feel like, you know, Jamie and I really did it right. And they kind of gently said, just so you know, it was like a village that raised those kids. Mm-hmm. Like the conversations that they have about the new creation and about art and the way that they make art, that's like from going to Hutchmoots from the time they were a little kid and from listening to rabbit room conversations and from hearing their dad talk with their uncle and their aunt about the novels that they're writing. And so it's just like the kids have grown up in this village of people who take the gospel seriously, but also take calling and art seriously as a way of proclaiming God's dominion here. As much as I would like to take credit for that, I really genuinely think that it's just the the fruit of this whole community in Nashville um, that the kids have grown up watching. Can you describe what it was like sitting down together with your family listening to Sky's latest album? <laughs> That's, uh, well, I'll tell, I'll tell two quick stories about that. With Sky, we had a release party for her at the house. So the boys were both here. We cooked a big dinner and we celebrated her and made a thing out of it. And then we all sat on the back porch with tiki torches and a Bluetooth like music player and just sat and listened to it from top to bottom and wept 
We mm-hmm. just sat there. I could cry right now thinking about it. It was just so beautiful. Like, it, and it's amazing to have your kid minister to you. But the way she talks about the God that she loves and she believes loves her is so finely tuned with what I most need to hear. Sitting there being ministered to by this record that she wrote and that Asher produced mm. and that Aiden sang on mm. uh, was an amazing experience. And so we just were just kind of blown away by that. With Asher, with the Namo Project, just a few weeks before that when he got the master's, we went on a family drive. All five of us piled into the little car and we just drove around for an hour with it turned up to 11. <laughs> and uh, and again, like I, I kept looking in the rearview mirror and I saw Aiden like ugly crying. And then I looked over at Sky and she was ugly crying. And mm. then I was like, you guys are all crying. And then I burst into tears. And then I look and I see Asher who had been working on this record for the last year, um, just with his head in his hands crying. Just all Thanksgiving. Like it all just feels like it's our hearts responding to grace again and again. Yeah. And, it, you know, it was added to by the fact that the place that we did, like sitting on the back deck by the light of these fires, listening to Sky's record, which is so much like a light in the darkness. The metaphor was strong. And Asher even said that he was like, the first track on, on the Namo record, I want it to be the kind of thing that people think of listening to on a spring drive with the windows down. Mm. And that happened to be what was happening the day that we first listened to it. The sun burst out. We were driving south of Nashville in the hills. The windows were down. It was up to 11. And the combination of the music and the the place that the Lord had made around us for it to, us to listen to, it just like w- drilled into my memory forever. So I'll n- I don't think I'll ever drive that road without thinking of that moment again. You know what a gift. Um, so it's amazing. It, it kind of gives me a glimpse into what it is for God to look look at us and see His kids making records and and doing doing whatever it is that they've been called to do. Um, I, I, my friend Matt Canlis, who's a pastor out in Washington, he talks about how God wanted to have kids. <laughs> Like he wanted kids and we are, we are the kids. God, the father, like created this whole world so that he could enjoy what it's like to, to be a father and of children. You might need to edit that out because theologically it could get weird, but, um, (laughs) but I think it's a beautiful thought. Like every, every moment of delight that you experience in your children is just a tiny glimmer of the way the Lord feels about you. And Mm -hmm. what an amazing thought that is. I'll tell you what, JJ, I think I can vouch for both of us in saying that Andrew's kids are very quality human beings. Yeah, they're amazing. I really like hanging out with them. What's crazy to me is that all three of them are ridiculously talented. I mean, it seems reasonable that maybe one of them would be really amazing. Inherited the artist gene. Yeah, but all three. Yeah, it's kind of not fair. (laughs) I think we're ready for act two then. All right, we're going to head back in time to 1999. Get ready for Y2K, everyone. Ooh. Have you rebooted your computer? Is everything Y2K compliant? Get some jugs of water. Dude, I remember being in college, getting ready for Y2K, and I was like, all I can afford is macaroni and cheese. like To stock up on? Yeah. It was like, I have three. (laughs) You're doomed. I hope Y2K doesn't last long. Yeah. (laughs) Because basically you'd be toast. But good news, nothing happened. I survived. 
I survived Y2K. It turns out I'm Y2K compliant, everyone. <laughs> Why weren't there t-shirts that said, I survived Y2K? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there were. We just couldn't afford them. Oh, yeah, that's probably true. Act two, stirring the waters. In 1999, a 25-year-old Andrew Peterson signed his first record contract. And as often happens, things didn't unfold the way he hoped they would. So when my first record came out with Essential Records, they had a, like a little sub-label called Watershed Records, and Bebo Norman and I were the first signees to it. It was kind of their attempt at trying out a label that would like specifically support these kind of independent singer-songwriter artists. And so my first record came out and surprised everybody. It did way better than any of the people at the label thought it would do, and it had some significant radio play for the first song, first couple of singles actually. And so I was just like, you know, going from Cademan's Call to signing a record deal to the record actually doing really well to like hearing a song on the radio for the first time, like in that thing you do, like yeah. Jane and I were dancing in our living room. And, <laughs> and it, it really was, it was this magical, I mean, really stressful. We were like on the road constantly trying, you know, we had little babies and we're trying to make it all work without any money. And, uh, you know, we just saw nothing but like, it's all downhill from here um, in the future. And then the second album came out and it happened to release on 9-11. Can you tell us a little bit about your like expectation for that record? Like, I'm sure you put a lot of yourself, I mean, were you really proud of that record? I was really proud of that record. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it was one of the things where a lot of sophomore albums end up being all about being on the road <laughs> because because <laughs> the first record you've got your whole life to write the songs and the second one you've got a year or two and so we were working really hard but I'm, I'm but at the same time like really feeling like the songs were strong and and at this you know there's a song called No More Faith which is I think the first song on the album and it opens with the line, this is not another another song about the mountains. And on the first record, the song that the big single was called Nothing to Say, which was about me driving through the mountains. Hmm. And so I was intentionally kind of like referencing the, the last one and thought this would be a great radio follow-up to that first one. It just doesn't work like that. Yeah. <laughs> Every time you try to write a radio song, in my experience, it just doesn't work. But when you when you're just being diligent and writing from your heart and telling your story well, then you stand a chance to really connect at a deep level. And so I do think that I was very conscious of the fact that more people were going to be paying attention to this record. Um, like when I was writing the first album's songs, I was in, you know, I was in college mostly. Right. And you don't really think about this, this big invisible audience that's going to be listening. And with the second one, I, I definitely had those voices in my head. And so... We, were, we had been on the road a lot, and we had sold our passenger van and bought an RV, which was super stressful financially. Oh, yeah. been there. Yeah, and uh, we just actually bought our first house, which was also super stressful. And we had two babies. The two boys were 14 months apart, and so they were, they were really little at the time. And so I just had all of this dad pressure. Yeah. This thing has got to work. This has got to work, you know. And so... So far, so good. The label seemed excited about the record. We were excited about the album. We had a whole tour planned for the fall 
right after the release. And then we were in Orlando, Florida at Z88.3, the Christian radio station in my college town. And we were doing an interview that morning to promote the release show that night. And it was 8.45. We walked into the studio that we started talking about our new record. And then in the middle of that interview, somebody burst into the room and said, we have to go to the news. Something terrible's happened. And they just abruptly ended our interview appropriately and kind of booted us out. And I remember Jamie and Gabe and I walked out to the RV in the parking lot of the radio station, kind of in a daze, like what's going on exactly? And we turned on the TV in the RV and watched the second plane hit. Ugh. We just kind of like, oh man, like, you know, you don't want to think to yourself, what about my album release at a moment like that? Because, you know, the whole world is changing and there's, there's death and there's all this tragedy happening, but it's impossible to not think, what are the implications of this on how I'm going to buy diapers next week? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know? That was the beginning of like a really tough season because I remember we did the show that night. And we did it kind of in defiance. Like we were like, we're going to sing because these things matter more now than ever. Yeah. And I remember my dad was at the show and I asked him to come and lead a prayer for the people who lost family members and stuff. And uh, then we struck out on tour in the fall of 2001 when nobody wanted to come to concerts and every, the economy was tanking. And, and so it was just, it was a hard season. I don't really like who I was during that season. Hmm. I remember... You know, before that, I didn't really care about radio play. I didn't, you know, it was really fun when it happened, but you just didn't care. Right. Or numbers, because usually it was good news. It was like, you know, your manager emailing to say, hey, great numbers this week. You know, you got this many ads on radio or you got this many whatever. And I'd be like, awesome, that's great, moving on. But once all that stuff was stripped away in the wake of that album, I was calling them saying, how did the record do this week? Yeah. You know, did we get any ads this week? Are we going to be okay, basically? Did we have mm -hmm. any more shows cancel? And so I started paying attention a little too much to the charts and the, the statistics, you know. <laughs> I kind of just felt like I need. I was looking for comfort because I felt like I was, I was the one in charge of providing for my family. Yeah. And it wasn't really working. So, yeah, that was a, it was a dark season. And, you know, that led to a lot of other things that just in, breakdowns in relationship and all kinds of stuff, but it, it definitely was going from feeling like this was all going to be easy to this is much more difficult than I ever thought it would be. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Sky was born, three kids was too much for us to all travel together as a family anymore. So Jamie started staying home. So I was found myself with the prospect of just going from touring with my wife and family and my best friend in the world to being alone. Mm -hmm. You know, it was weird. This is one of the, the hardest lessons that I learned in that season. I remember when the first record came out, I would show up at, this, at the label headquarters, just drop in. I'd be in the area and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go say hey to these guys. I love these guys. And I'd walk in and people would stand up in their cubicles and they'd be like, Andrew, how's it going? And I'd kind of just pop into the president's office or we'd just shoot the breeze and I'd be like, all right, see you guys later. And, you know, you're walking past a wall that has like Third Day, Jars of Clay, Cademan's Call, Bebo Norman, Andrew Peterson, you know, and you're feeling like I'm in a family, I'm a part of the gang, it's great, mm. these are my people. And then when the second record tanked, 
because of 9-11 and because it just didn't resonate with people in the same way, I would drop into the label and people wouldn't pop out of their cubicles. You know, and it's understandable because they probably just got out of a conference room where they were talking about what do we do about Andrew? Right. Like we can't, his record sales can't, you know, it's a business. So they've got to think about this stuff. And I totally get that. But at the time it was embarrassing. Mm-hmm. I remember realizing, oh, I thought we were friends. Actually, we were just like business partners mm-hmm. and, and my end of the business isn't, isn't going to work anymore, you know? And so it was kind of humiliating and they didn't do anything. I kind of like did it to myself. They very graciously allowed me to make a third record. And I don't think they needed to do that. That was just an act of kindness on their part Hmm. to allow me to make a third record. And they kind of said, hey, the budget can't be what the last record's budget was. And that's when Ben Shive walked into my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, I had just started traveling with Ben. And I was like, I really want Ben to be a part of the recording process. And so Steve Hendelong and Derry Doherty were the producers. And they were heroes of Ben. So I was like, hey, come be a partner with me in the process of this album. I knew we wanted to produce records. And so it was a fulfilling experience because that one was the one where I no longer had a first record to live up to. Mm. What was that record called? Love and Thunder. Okay. Which is also the title of the new Thor movie from what I hear. (laughs) Perfect. Yes. Foreshadowing. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) Uh, Which means that some executive, when they were talking about the naming the new Thor movie, they had to have Googled Love and Thunder and seen like Andrew Pierre. That's not going to happen. No matter. Yeah. It's like the closest I'll ever get to like the Marvel franchise. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the, uh, but with that third record, I was very clearly like in a new season, you know, traveling with Ben a lot. I had co-written some of the songs with Ben. I didn't care. I knew it was kind of like the swan song on that label. So I was like, I have zero real interest in radio play. All I was trying to do was make the most beautiful record that I could, hmm. not to try to make the, the best possible selling record that I could. Yeah. Not long after that album came out, the label called and said, hey, we're going to have to let you go. It was really sad, but it wasn't a shock. I still hear from people that that's their favorite album of mine <laughs> and because I think it came out of suffering. Yeah. What, what had been percolating under the surface. Around the time of my first record with the label, I had this idea to to try to tell the story of the incarnation of Jesus through a cycle of songs, that there could be a, a new way to do a Christmas concert, one that would be narrative, but not like a play, but it would be like, I'm, I'm, I love singer songwriter folk songs, you know what I mean? And so I was like, why isn't there now a body of songs that tells the story of the coming of Jesus, starting in the Old Testament, that would kind of surprise people with just how beautiful that story is, with new songs about Christmas. And so, you know, around the time the second record came out was when I had written most of those songs and asked the label to let me record it. But again, like, you know, they did, <laughs> I wasn't in a position to like ask them to take a big risk, you know, so very understandably they were hesitant about it. They finally wrote me out of my contract and allowed me to record Behold the Lamb of God on my own if I raise my own money. And they were like, we're not going to own it. We don't think anybody is going to buy it. <laughs> and Thanks for the vote of confidence, guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so once again, God arranged the, for this great mercy for me to have had that album carved out of my record deal. And I called some friends and said, can I borrow money? 
to make this album. How much did you need to make the record? I remember I, from two people, borrowed $10,000 and it was like, please just let me, if I can borrow the money until the record comes out, then we'll, I'll just pay you back with record sales. Yeah. And these people were so generous. I mean, I, we had like no money. Yeah. Three kids, you know, and trying Ugh. to make it work and just got <laughs> dropped from my label. And so I got a lot going for me. $10,000. <laughs> exactly. And the, like these, it was just amazing. Like, you know, looking back at the time, you're like, you're so driven that you're like, you don't have time to stop and consider what a miracle it is that somebody would give you $10,000. <laughs> yeah. Looking back, I'm like, man, what an amazing thing it is that they were that kind, yeah. that they were willing to risk their money in that way. So the great way that it worked out was that I was making the album with Ben and Andrew Senga producing it when I got the call that I was being dropped from my label. So I didn't even miss a beat. Like suddenly they were saying, hey, so you're done at Essential Records. And I hung up the phone and continued work on this album that I was already making. When did you realize, I think this is, this is something that's connecting with people. This is something that, that's really special. It was before we even did the first show. It was when Randall Goodgame and my brother Pete came to the rehearsal and they stood in the back and I remember they were crying during the rehearsal and they were like, this is, this is something special. And uh, uh, quick note, if you're a songwriter and you want to know if a song is succeeding, if, it, if your song is making people cry, that's a really good indicator. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. It is. Yeah, it is. And it's hugely encouraging. And that's what your goal is, you know? Like, it's not just about, I hope I look cool in the next whatever. And then I hope it's, like, entertainment's great. Like, I want, I want people to feel happy or to feel whatever when they hear a song. But, like, my big goal is how can I get deep enough into somebody to stir those waters, hmm. waters that kind of overflow into tears. Yeah. It's something that you can't even articulate. But, like, that, and to me, that's a waking up of longing. Yeah. And uh, having those guys kind of affirm the show was a big moment. And then the EO is a pretty clunky tour. Like, it's a far cry from what it is now. Um, but again, it was enough to tell us that we were on the right track. You just celebrated the 20th anniversary of the tour. Yeah. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah. It has certainly stood the test of time and grown in depth. Yeah. It's also been like one of the, th the things we've worked hardest at over the years. We were given this assignment by mm -hmm. the Lord. Hey, go and tell my story. And it ain't going to be easy, but just go do it. And so with the help of Ben and and kind of in keeping with that same Cademan's call mentality of trying to be generous with the stage and the time, the Christmas show is always intended to be that kind of a community vibe. It certainly is. Is there a particular song on that record that especially resonates with you? So funny. Uh, like, it's hard for me to remember much about it because we were just frantically trying to survive when those <laughs> songs were being written. Yeah. It didn't feel like a big inspiration at the time. It just felt like, oh, well, I need to write a song about Moses and the Passover. Yeah. And here's the thing. Once again, there was not a lot to live up to because it was a new idea. So it was just like, let's just try to do the thing. Um, but my favorite song is the title track. And it's my favorite song because it came together in such a a way that I feel like only God could have orchestrated. The first or second year of the tour... 
I knew the thing was supposed to be called Behold the Lamb of God, but there wasn't a song called Behold the Lamb of God yet, but that was the theme of the show. And so I had written all the other songs. I was exhausted. My creative juices were spent. And so I wrote the lyrics to the chorus and I gave them to Laura Story and said, I got nothing musically. Do you have anything? And so she, like the next day, played me the piano part to the chorus of that song. And we just sang that chorus a few times. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the life and light of men. Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. I knew it wasn't complete yet. When we went to record the album four years later, I wrote verses to it, but uh, and they were pretty, but I, I didn't ever feel like it was totally done. So then last year when we did the 20th anniversary release of the album, we re-recorded the whole thing, which was just one of the great joys of my life was mm -hmm. getting to make that album the way that we did. I think there were 40 musicians in one studio at once, who all of whom were dear friends and believers in the story that we're telling and great musicians. And so we just had this like two day party where we just re-recorded these songs that we already knew. And so Ben Shive, who's one of the best songwriters and musicians and people that I know, was like, of the songs on this record that we want to tweak now that we've got this chance, which is the one, and we both agree, we're like, behold the Lamb of God. It's never had verses. It's never been a congregational song. And Ben showed up one day with these verses that are the most perfect compliment to the chorus that we had always sung. A voice is crying, prepare the way, make straight the path, your King has come to die, behold the Lamb of God. So I wrote the words of the chorus, Laura Story wrote the melody of the chorus, and it took 20 years for Ben to finally write the verses that completed that song. Isn't that amazing? I love like, it. I just love the way that it all came together. And it was just like the longest simmer. But once that song was finished and we sang it on the Christmas tour this last year, it was as if it had always been. Like the crowd immediately knew how to sing the melody because mm. Ben had incorporated themes from the whole work, you know, into <laughs> the verses that he had written. And so it just felt, it's just amazing. Like, uh, and that kind of collaboration and uh, community, kind of everybody pouring their own gift into the thing is is why it works. And mm -hmm. it is, I think that's the church. It's the way it's meant to be. Yeah. It, it totally is. Well, and I have to say, like, the, the new version of the album just sounds incredible because you and the artists who originally worked on the first record have now had a career's worth of experience yeah. to be able to put into this new recording. Uh, yeah, it's Jamie just brought me. She just made her first batch of sourdough bread. <gasps> Yum. And uh, it smells amazing. amazing. Can you just push it into your computer screen? <laughs> yeah. so I am going to try a bite while it's warm. Hold yes. on one second. Let's do it. It's oh, got wow. my mom's pear butter on it. Oh, mm. my gosh. 
Okay, this is kind of, you're being mm. a little mean right now. <laughs> mm. Oh my goodness. It's so good. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> We're like all the other people who suddenly had the urge to bake things. Oh, oh, that's the uh, truth. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I've been baking so much. Well, I I also want to just speak to um, my favorite moment on the tour when we hear Behold the Lamb live is how you have that kind of like mashup at the very end where like all of these themes are coming together that you've heard over the course of the show. And the story put together in that form, it's just like this, this refresher where it's condensing an hour's worth of material into just a couple of minutes. Mm. Uh, and it's so emotionally stirring and fulfilling. talking about stirring those waters like I can't help but be moved when I mm -hmm. hear that all put back together and it, and it kind of comes back around to the first track for the conclusion of mm -hmm. of the album so um bravo Thank it's, you. it's a, a beautiful piece thank you Looking back, I think it's so amazing that the record label passed on Andrew's Christmas record because not only does that mean that he was able to use those proceeds to provide for his family, but also the entire cast of people who come out for the Christmas tour year after year. Definitely. He was able to make the record that he wanted to make and stay true to his artistic vision for the album. And I know for so many people, it's part of their family Christmas tradition to go see the performance of Behold the Lamb of God. I mean, that is so special to know that something that you've created is part of the fabric of somebody else's Christmas tradition. Oh, that's so true. Okay, JJ, one more jump back in time. Take it away. Act one, sharing the stage. You're about to hear the story of the big break that launched Andrew's career. It's a story that involves the Olive Garden, the worst web address ever, and a lost bag full of money. When I was in college, I, went, I remember uh, the GMA was a big thing. It still is. They do the Dove Awards. And, and so when you're living in Florida in 1995 and you're you know, trying to find a way into the music industry, that seems like the way to do it. You know, it's kind of like, oh, there's this GMA week is this big convention that happened every year here. And when I was in college, I entered the songwriting contest that they would do and the artist contest that was, it was called Spotlight and Songwriter. And I entered them both. I remember it was like $300 to enter. And I talked to Jamie about it because we were college students. And I was like, I think this might be a way for me to like meet some industry executive who could help me, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so I ended up entering and I won both of them in the Orlando area. Wow. And then that meant that you kind of like American Idol, I made it to the final eight in Nashville. And so, you know, Jars of Clay had won the thing like 
a few years earlier and hmm. a few other like uh so i competed against nicole nordeman what so she she beat me in the songwriter competition there. <laughs> uh i didn't even place thanks nicole and, uh, <laughs> anyway but i thought for sure like we're going to nashville there's this big you know convention and you're playing in front of all these people and this is going to change everything and so i went up there didn't win anything came home nothing was different hmm. and i was like well i guess i'll just keep playing music in churches and so i just kind of kept doing the thing that i was doing in hindsight i realized that almost nothing that i tried to make happen led to anything really good isn't that the truth <laughs> yeah it's it was like, almost always grace. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it is always grace, but it all you, you can recognize it as that. Like, it's like God arranges for you to, like, not be able to really take any credit. Yeah. I can't take any credit for the fact that Cademan's call was so generous. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've experienced that time and time again with JJ, mm -hmm. where it's just like any time that we're trying to engineer something or set her up for success – like it, it, <laughs> it falls bombs. flat. Yeah. It's like, wow, this miraculous thing just happened. Let's try to make it happen again. Totally. Doesn't yeah, work. It just does. doesn't work. <laughs> no. Yeah. So frustrating, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You just have to wait for the, the surprise or the gift. Yeah. And so in the meantime, you you have to be diligent. You keep working mm -hmm. and you keep, so that when the, the, the moment presents itself, you walk into it and you go, oh, I know what to do. Mm -hmm. I have a song for that, right. or I've been preparing for this thing without even knowing that I've been preparing for this thing. Um, so it's like, it doesn't let you off the hook. You still have to do oh, the work. Oh, sure. Yeah. But then whenever the little breakthrough comes, God arranges it so that he's the one who gets the glory. It's, yeah. it's marvelous. In 1997, Andrew was only 22 years old. He was just married to his wife, Jamie and the two of them moved to Nashville to try to make it in music. I got a job at the Olive Garden, Jamie got a job babysitting, and we lived in an apartment, a duplex in Antioch, and uh, and just were trying really hard to find a way to play music and couldn't get any gigs, kept trying to find gigs, couldn't find any gigs. Every now and then we would get something in Florida, <laughs> where we were from, and we would drive all the way back to Florida yeah, and play. We know how that. Yeah, goes. we relate. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was so depressing. Um, but we just we felt called to it, and and I didn't know what else I would do with my life, you know. And so right around that time was when Cademan's call like splashed onto the scene, and I remember first hearing them. And just being riveted because it was there was nothing like it happening in Christian music yeah. in the late nineties. Yeah. And it was so energizing and exciting to like to hear those guys sing these songs that were like poetically deep and it sounded like the kind of music that I liked. It kind of stood out on Christian radio because they actually had radio play right. back then. And so I was just riveted by this band. And I remember calling Gabe Scott, who lived in Florida still at the time, and saying, dude, have you heard this band Cademan's Call? I think we're going to open for him one day. And he was kind of like, yeah, whatever, man. For people who don't know, who is Gabe in your, in your life? Well, Gabe is one of my best and oldest friends. We met when I was in college in Florida. He came down from Michigan to Florida uh, to go to school, and we ended up meeting at a lock-in one night. He was a chaperone and I was the music for the 3 a.m. <laughs> slot. 
And we just hit it off immediately. We went into the pastor's office at 4 a.m. and started playing Rich Mullins songs and Stephen Curtis Chapman songs and Randy Stonehill songs until dawn. And not long after that, I had a show and I called him and I was like, hey, you want to like come be my be a guitar player with me at this show? And and he did. And I just loved him so dearly. And he was a blast to play with. And then Jamie and I moved to Nashville and I just started like begging Gabe to come too. I hmm. was like, you got to come, you got to come, you got to come. This All of this happened in a very short amount of time. The, I ended up going onto the Cademan's Call message board, which was just the late 90s. <laughs> that was a thing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I signed in with my AOL, you know, like dial-up account. Wow. What, what was your account named? Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't remember. It was like... PD Music no. 96. Yeah, or a gu- guitar guy. <laughs> yes. I remember at the time I had a website, uh, a domain name that I didn't know how to like customize the domain name. So it was a, a randomly assigned website. Okay. So it was like XMQ <laughs> exclamation really point backslash backslash. Oh, no. And it was like 26 letters long and I memorized it. <laughs> So that if I were at a show and somebody said, how can I find out more information about you? I would say, get a pin. And I would say, www.mxq slash exclamation point and this long string of letters. So funny. And uh, I ended up uh, going onto the Cademan's Call message board at the time and posting a message that said, I love you guys' music. I hear the Rich Mullins influence. He was a hero of mine. Here's a link to my website. Luckily, I didn't. I, I could just like hot link it. <laughs> And uh, and all the w- website had was my lyrics. It didn't even have clips of your music. It was just no, your writing. I wouldn't even known how to do that. I <laughs> don't know if the internet was fast enough at the time for clips. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I was wearing my Olive Garden apron. It was you know that night after I got off work, and I kind of like surfed to a few other websites. And when I came back around to the message board one of the guys in the band had responded and said, I just read this guy's lyrics. Everybody go check him out. And I just felt like this rush of encouragement. I couldn't believe that somebody had actually paid attention to him. And it just so happened that like a week or two later, they were playing in Chattanooga. So Jamie and I drove down to Chattanooga. I met him and said, hey, I'm the guy that was on the message board. Here's a copy of my CD. And I gave it to Cliff and asked him if I could open for him in Jackson, Tennessee at Union University, which was another week or two away. And he said yes, without ever having heard a note of my music, without ever having heard me play, all they were going on was the fact that they had read my lyrics on on the message board. And so that was just this like massive turning point in my life. Like there's just a few moments where it was like on the other side of that was like this whole field of life that was waiting for me. Wow. And so the crazy thing about it was like Cademan's at the time, they were so wonderful because they had such a community spirit. Like the rumor was, I think that was even the way I framed it when I asked them if I could open for them was, hey, I heard you guys only let independent artists open for you. (laughs) I'm an independent artist. Will you let me open for you? And they said yes. And then I find out that Eric Peters, when he was in the band Ridgely, opened for Cademan's. That Bebo Norman was an indie artist that opened for Cademan's. Um, uh, Sandra McCracken, um, Jill Phillips, and Andy Gullihorn opened for Cademan's. So they had hmm. this like 
history of really caring for the underdog, hmm. really paying attention to good music that was out there. And they, they saw their platform as a way to help other people. And so within, you know, a month or two of that first opening slot with Cademan's, I found myself on a tour bus with Bebo. Tell us about that opening experience. Like, <laughs> what was it yeah. like? Yeah, it was amazing. Like, I was so used to playing in Florida where I went to this little Bible college. When I say little, I mean 150 students, like a really tiny Bible college. So my earliest gigs were playing, like I said, youth conferences or go into like snowbird churches. What's a snowbird for, for people <laughs> who aren't from Florida? It's people who, who spend the winters in Florida. And so there are whole towns in Florida that are snowbird towns where half the town shuts down in the summer because all these people from Michigan and Minnesota go back home. And so... I would play in these churches that where like the pastor would like the church wouldn't function during the summer <laughs> because everybody was back home in their in their northern climb. That meant that it was mostly older people in these churches. So my first gigs were calling up friends of mine who were pastors at churches. Back then a lot of the churches did Sunday night services and mm -hmm. I was like, "Hey, I'll I'll do a concert in the slot that if you don't want to preach Sunday night, I'll come and do it for a love offering." And so most of the time they were games. Almost every Sunday night I was playing a 45-minute show for a bunch of people who didn't know me and were six times older than I was. <laughs> and so I, But I had to learn to try to connect with them. I was like, I've got these songs and I want to write songs that will somehow do the thing that music can do through the Holy Spirit for them. And so I was, I was trying really hard to like be true to this aesthetic that I had musically, but at the same time love the people well out there. And it was really difficult. Like it was hard because they wouldn't clap always. Uh, you know, I might sell five CDs um, or tapes at the time. They didn't have a website. There was, so that was my experience of concerts. It was like youth stuff or church stuff, never college stuff. And so then I go to uh, open for Cademan's and they're at Jackson University and there's a thousand kids, students crammed into this room and they're going bonkers over the idea that they could actually like Christian music. You know, mm -hmm. it was theologically sound and, you know, passionate. And so I got up there and I, I remember I brought two boxes of 30 CDs each. And uh, because I had only ever sold 10 a night, you know, but I brought the boxes and they, they set them up on the Cademan's Call merch table. And I did the show and was just like overwhelmed because people applauded. <laughs> and like they were like they cared about it and they resonated with what we were saying and it like almost as soon as I got off the stage Cliff Young from Cademan's gets up and says you guys don't buy our CD tonight go buy Andrew Peterson's oh, CG, wow. CD we're, we're on a label he's not go support this guy and they went and bought all 60 of those CDs in minutes and uh, that was how we paid our rent that month amazing, That's amazing. <laughs> yeah it's it a pretty crazy moment isn't there a story about having the merch money and driving yeah. home and then forgetting it? Or that, for, yeah, that happened that night. That, that, well, tell us that story. <laughs> sure. Yeah, we had we had a, this bright blue money bag um, that I actually still have the money bag, and it's got a <laughs> Cademan's Call bumper sticker on it. That's amazing. Um, Is it because, like in a shadow box, like over your bed? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it actually still gets used, like on tour. Like people what? will see this old Cademan's Call sticker and be like, what is this? And so uh, 
Yeah, but this old blue money bag that uh, we had the $600 in from CD sales that night. And it was me, Jamie, and uh, there was one other person in the car, and I forget who it was, right? Brian Shind, my friend Brian from the Olive Garden, came with us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's a bass player. But anyway, uh, we were driving home. We got home at like 3 a.m., just elated, and realized that the money bag was not in the car. And I was like, no. Oh, like we didn't go anywhere. How It was in the car because we paid for McDonald's with it at midnight, you know. And Jamie was like, I remember we switched drivers at a rest area outside of Jackson or whatever. And I was like, oh, my goodness, it must have fallen out of the car when we switched drivers. And I was like, I got to go back because what if it's still there? Jamie was like, there's no way it's still going to be there. I was like, but it's it's our rent. I got to go back. So she went to bed and I got back in the car and drove the three hours back Ugh. and you know, drove past the the rest area, exited, turned around, came back, and there it was in the middle of the road, underneath a little cone of street light. Just oh. this bright blue money bag had sat there for <laughs> five hours. Wow. Uh, so I got home at dawn and was just like crawled into bed and was like, Jamie, I found the money. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, um, it was a crazy time. And I like, you know, after that, going on tour with those guys, it was like when I look back at what a f joyful, fun time it was, it was pre 9-11. It was before Napster and Spotify and iTunes, you know, and like, it was when the this idea that college students could get really excited about music was was still fresh and full of energy. And I remember they would sell out every show. Wow. Like there would be lines of people around the blocks at these clubs, you know, and, and for free, they let us open for them uh, for 52 shows or something like that. Oh my goodness. Would you say that without that connection to Cademan's that your career would not exist like the way that it, it is right now? I absolutely think that. One of the things I loved was that Cliff would always introduce us. Like he would get up and he would tell the audience, we love this guy and here's why. And you know, a lot of shows aren't like that. You know, the opener's kind of on their own. They right. walk out cold. And I, f I forget where I got it from, but but most of the time now I go open the show and play a few songs and, and we'll say, hey, thanks for coming, everybody. I want to introduce you to so-and-so, like Taylor Linhart, who's on the tour that we're supposed to be doing right now. Yeah. Um, so just as a way of say, like showing that we're all in this together, like the people on stage are friends, you know? And so it just was this lesson to me in community and how to how to love the people around it. So you're not just playing music uh, with your blinders on thinking, how can I meet my bottom line? But rather, if this is truly kingdom work, how do, how do you keep your eyes on the horizon and kind of keep your eyes peeled for people who need your help, who you're in a unique position to like reach out and say, hey, here's this little platform that I've been given. How can I share it with somebody? It's so good for me to hear Andrew's perspective on that. Well, time and time again, I talk to our friends who are quote unquote successful. And most of the time, the way that they achieved where they were in their career was through something that they didn't do on purpose. It was like an opportunity came their way and they stepped through that door and had a song for the moment or were prepared for the opportunity on that stage. It's such a great reminder to just be obedient and faithful to do the work that's right in front of you to do. 
Well, friends, you've heard Andrew's story. We're going to do a quick recap. It's a segment that we call Let's Rewind the Tape. Andrew is a prolific writer of music and books. But his work wouldn't nearly be as rich without the community he surrounded himself with. A community who joins him every Christmas season to perform his album, Behold the Lamb of God. But that album wouldn't have existed if he hadn't first been dropped from his record deal. Which was only made possible after Andrew grew his audience, spending time on the road with the band Cademan's Call. Who was willing to risk sharing the stage with him because one of the members of the band ran across his lyrics on an internet message board one night in 1997. It's a good thing Y2K hadn't happened yet. Yeah. This episode of Instrumental was produced by me, JJ Heller. And me, Dave Heller. Our theme music is my song, Big Love, Small Moments. That I helped write. (laughs) To find out more about me, listen to more of my songs, or watch my music videos, please visit jjheller.com. That's two letter J's, H-E-L-L-E-R.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Instrumental. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.